Welcome back to Born Curious. I'm Ivalisa Estrada. I am Heather Min. If you've just discovered us, welcome. Born Curious is brought to you by the relentlessly, insatiably inquisitive folks at Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Our fellowship program, in which 50 scholars from various fields spend a year on our campus immersed in research, writing, and exploration, and many of them collaborate on projects. Both of today's guests gave public talks earlier this year. Okay, let's dive right in. Welcome, Omar Dawachi and Yeva Yusionite. Um, would you like to introduce yourselves? Who are you? I'm Omar Dawachi. I'm a professor of uh, medical anthropology at Rutgers University. I'm a trained physician and healthcare practitioner. Um, I grew up in Iraq, and I've been here at Cliff for this wonderful year. Hi, my name is Yawa Yusonite. I am Lithuanian. Uh, that's where I was born and grew up. I came to the U.S., to Boston, actually, in 2006. I am an associate professor of international security and anthropology at Brown University. I am also an EMT, paramedic, and wildland firefighter, and uh, i this past year here at the Radcliffe writing my third book, Exit Wounds. Did you know each other before your arrival? We met at the Harvard uh, Anthropology Seminar. Omar's book just came out and uh, he was touring around the country and we really wanted to, him to present his work. When I started my, my research on the U.S.-Mexico border with injured migrants, um, Omar's articles on how to think about wounds and more more expansively um, has been very influential. The way this idea of the wound also was was so salient in different contexts, I think Yeva's work has shown it to be uh, so useful to think with in, in, the, in the U.S.-Mexico border. And we're both thinking in the same kind of direction. That was the, that's something that struck me when listening to both of your presentations too, which which was that uh, you're thinking not only about the physical wounds, the effect of the wounds on the body, but also the effects, like metaphorically, the effects on society. I think it was about a year ago, so last May, when I saw the list of all Radcliffe Fellows and I saw that the other anthropologist in the cohort is Omar, I thought, like, this is a dream come true. I could not have wanted anyone else to be here. You're both ethnographic anthropologists. Immediately when I think anthropology, sorry for being so basic about it, but I think, you know, people who excavate like old ruins. Mm -hmm. um, what is ethnography? Archaeologists are the ones who excavate, who go and look at kind of the, uh, the kind of material history that other societies, other civilizations have left behind. And cultural anthropologists, which Yeva and I both are, we are more interested in contemporary societies and interested in, in kind of social life, how society organizes itself, and how um, uh, history shapes the present, uh, how meaning is, is, uh, uh, is, is organized and given to different processes of everyday life. And how is that different from history, sociology, economics, political science? Well, ethnography, I think, as a method is really critical. So what we, um, what we do is we get immersed in people's everyday lives. Like some, some scholars have called it deep hanging out. 
uh, others have described it as an embedded and embodied research, which means what we know, we don't know only from interviews or from reading archival materials or from looking at numbers, but most, what is most important is actually spending time with people and spending time with people not only in arranged settings, for example, when you do an interview for an hour, but actually being with them from morning to evening through the, like living with them uh, and getting, getting their perspective. So if you go to any school of anthropology, the training, a lot of the times it's that usually you do an ethnography for one year. You get to kind of understand a cycle of life within a society within that one year and, and, and begin to kind of make sense of how society organizes itself around these uh, 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 different practices like agriculture, religion, uh, kinship, um, economy. And this has changed a little bit because now anthropologists study societies that are like societies we also live in. So you can study the United States, various communities in Boston. You can study doctors or Wall Street bankers. Um, so these are not communities very, very far away from our everyday experiences and from people's general knowledge. So um, in that way, anthropology has come closer to us. Mm-hmm. And also they've, they've done transnational work. So you go and follow something, not necessarily just to study a, a group of people, but you can kind of follow a process, follow a, um, a process that you know, begins somewhere and ends somewhere else. So, so these multi-sided ethnographies uh, are another kind of form of how ethnography evolved to deal with uh, understanding of, of social processes. Here we are with an excellent transition to <laughs> you talking about your work. So please do share uh, what you've been working on for the past year. And did you embed yourself for a full year? How has your ethnography shaken out? So the project that I was working on here actually developed from an earlier one. I would say um, I spent much more than a year now on the U.S.-Mexico border. I began uh, working with emergency responders and migrants who get injured when they cross um, through the desert, mostly in southern Arizona. And out of that project, I came up with the idea to do my current one, which is about the impact of American guns on Mexican society. So both of these projects involved ethnographic field work. Um, The first one with emergency responders maybe was a little more traditional ethnography because I did spend months and months with with firefighters and paramedics on shifts. Um, The current one about guns, it is a little more multi-sided. It is just what Omar was talking about when he said that it can be transnational following something. So following the gun as an object from gun stores in the U.S. to um, gun users and crime scenes in Mexico. Um, And this project was a little more fragmented. That is, I, I worked in some communities on the U.S. side in Texas and Arizona, and then I worked in, in several places in Mexico. I talked to government officials, for example, only in Mexico City and only in Arizona. And I worked with people who engage in gun smuggling and gun violence in uh, Texas and on the Mexican side. So in Tamaulipas and Nuevo León, making sure that I don't pass or share the information between these uh, these um, 
different groups of people. So, and I did much more archival research with the Gun Project too, compared to, I would say, purely ethnographic immersion in the life of emergency responders before. Um, yeah, but I started this work I, with emergency responders in 2014, 15, moved to researching guns in 2018. It's, it's been quite a few years. Which came first? Because I know that you were trained as, a, as an EMT and paramedic. Did the work come first and so you trained for the work or did you train to do the work and then became, become interested in what was going on at the border? I was an EMT and a paramedic before I ever became interested in migrant injuries on the border. So it was something I was doing. Um, I, I started it during my last year of uh, PhD studies and even considered not going further into academia, not taking up a tenure track job and just working as a, as a paramedic. Basically, I, I saw this article about people getting injured because the border wall is getting taller and taller. And I thought how interesting it would be to examine this very politicized, very polarizing issue from the perspective of paramedics and EMTs and firefighters, the ones who are first on scene. And being one helped me with it. Not, it not only helped me um, being accepted by the emergency responder community, but I could also participate in a meaningful way. So every every other day I would volunteer um, as, as, a, as an EMT and paramedic and firefighter on both sides of the border. So that gave me maybe a little more um, insider of a perspective. And Omar, you have an equally insidery perspective <laughs> on the region because you're from the region that you study. I definitely uh, had an insider perspective, not only just because I'm from the region, but my actually first work was on doctors, uh, Iraqi doctors who um, who ended up leaving Iraq, escaping the country during very harsh times during the uh, uh, UN-imposed sanctions on the country in the 1990s and followed these doctors into Britain, where they were kind of all scrambling to figure out how to become members of, of the National Health Service in the, uh, in the UK. So I was a doctor. I worked in Iraq in the 1990s. I studied medicine. So my interest was really uh, partly to tell the story of Iraq's healthcare, which was one of the um, kind of a, an important regional hub for medicine and public health and its collapse under the U.S.-led wars in the 1990s and, and later on the sanctions. And I was really interested in how uh, uh, doctors uh, uh, as and, and as the Iraqi state have invested in many of them to work and save lives and work there, why would they leave? What, what, what was the kind of the incentive to escape the country and go to, an, to a place like Britain? This this idea of a coll the collapse of healthcare kind of continued in my in my work uh, in the way I became interested now not in the doctors but in the patients who were receiving care or actually in a way struggling to receive care in Iraq and trying eventually uh, there were many of them were also leaving Iraq rather not necessarily to the UK but to the regional healthcare systems where they were um, seeking care for. Uh, all kinds of wound, war-related war injuries, cancer, 
uh, all kinds of healthcare problems that were not being, uh, the treatment of which were not necessarily available in Iraq. And many of these patients um, were kind of losing trust in the healthcare system as hospitals were becoming even more dangerous places where patients were picking up these superbugs and, and all kinds of weird infections and uh, they were traveling with them. So so the, the story that I've been working on definitely has to do with my insider point of view, but I also learned a lot not uh, about the history of the place, a uh, place I grew up in, uh, maybe was, was not necessarily, I wouldn't have studied that history uh, if I maybe stayed as a doctor. Uh, but also to the effect of war in general and uh, the kind of this uh, uh, invisible stories. When we talk about war, we think mostly about, you know, maybe the death, the dead and the injured. We count, we produce numbers, but we don't know what, what, what happens to those injured people. Um, so this, the, the work that I've been doing here at the Radcliffe is uh, working on my second book project which is following these some of these traveling wounds and looking at kind of physical wounds as they manifest in these healthcare systems, but also at the kind of uh, societal wounds that have emerged from civil war, uh, violence, uh, the, uh, the kind of the failure of, of reconstruction of the place, loss. Um, so, so this is why why uh, this this there's a lot of stories that are kind of overlapping with our work because we are kind of looking at some of these bodily injuries and asking you know what do they tell us about uh, borders what do they tell us about uh, uh, you know violence what do they tell us about you know weapons what do they tell us about wounding in general you know who's wounding whom and how these wounds survive and 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 uh, uh, and articulate uh, and express themselves over time. And you're both working on site-specific work on in dangerous places, um, very far removed from the manicured lawns of Harvard University and Radcliffe Yard. So, what have you been doing uh, in this past year with the fellowship and your lovely office in Byerly Hall. When I moved into Byerly Hall, all this year was just dedicated to, to writing the book. So I finished, I did finish the manuscript. I, I find that having this distance between where I do research and where I think about it and where I write is very important because, um, on the U.S.-Mexico border and in Mexico, where most of my fieldwork um, happened, there are just so many pressing issues. And what I feel, I need this temporal and even more geographical separation to actually sit down and reflect on what everything that I've heard and everything that I've seen, what it means, uh, what is this bigger story how um, how to share it with people who have never been to the region. Um, and being here has just provided me with everything that, that a writer would need, which is a, a desk in, a, in an office and coffee and 
49 other fellows doing very interesting work. The the writing was, I would say, just as difficult as as the fieldwork part because you you spend all day thinking about it and re-listening to the stories and retelling them. Uh, so having little breaks, uh, going to hear somebody playing music or doing a presentation about films, that, that was just perfect setup. What about you? The most amazing part is having this time to disentangle all of this history, all of these experiences, all of the recordings, all of the field notes, all of the the writings that I've done, and then just to kind of feel, to kind of get a sense of what is this? What you know? What is this Frankenstein monster that that needs to be put all now together? And for all this period, I like like Eva was saying, uh, the most incredible experience is to be around so many different storytellers storytellers who are telling stories in so many different ways and visually um, um, you know through music through illustrations through science through history through fiction and nonfiction and that was something that was so valuable because I think most of us are struggling with how to tell our stories when you both were thinking about your closeness to your topics I was wondering what the role of objectivity is if any in anthropology. When you talk about objectivity, social in social sciences, it's just not the same thing as in the natural sciences. We cannot, you cannot replicate experiments regardless of who the researcher is, because so much of who you are influences not only what subject you decide to study, but how how you go about doing it, what people tell you. Unlike journalism, I would say, which um, expects viewers or listeners to hear all sides of the story. Ethnographers are usually embedded with a particular group of people uh, and tell the stories from their perspective. For example, when I was working on U.S.-Mexico border, my the, the perspective that I was most interested in was that of paramedics and DMTs and firefighters. At the same time, I did not do such embedded research with the Border Patrol. I did interview some of them, but I did not spend my days with them. You kind of prioritize one perspective over another, but it doesn't mean it is um, sub subjective in a way that, that makes it not true. Objectivity and subjectivities are kind of two sides of, of, of different things. Now, now, objectivity is never complete uh, because, uh, uh, you know, objectivity depends on the tools that we're using, even in science, you know. With subjectivity or being subjective is more about interpretations. Uh, we in try to interpret meaning of the subjects, uh, uh, their position uh, or what they kind of ascribe as meaning to things. So, so uh, I, I think... I think both of these elements are there in ethnographic work in many ways. And because part of our work is to explain phenomena sometimes, and sometimes it's to interpret phenomena. We definitely are more on the interpretive side. We try to interpret phenomena that we see through uh, meaning and look at conflicts and what these conflicts mean to people. But I also uh, think that uh, some of the 
explanations that we give to certain social phenomena are are you know not uh, not far away from some kind of a sense of objectivity i know a lot of anthropologists would not be agree with me about this <laughs> but as a, someone who's been has a foot in science and medicine and a foot in the kind of the social sciences and the humanities i feel uh, you know i have to i have to accept both of these uh, things and try to work with them in my own work subjectivity is not necessarily a bad thing it's actually a whole field of of inquiry uh, is based on notions of subjective interpretations and and the idea of subjectivity, meaning giving to how subjects themselves give meaning. Um, so that's what I think anthropology does. <laughs> it's deeply philosophical, actually. <laughs> um, who do you hope reads your work, your respective books? As scholars, we we write certain text for people in academia. More increasingly, more over the past years, I I redirected my writing towards the broader audience because I think it is almost unethical to just keep this knowledge within the academic community. We We are these stories, the people who share them with us, those stories deserve to be heard by as many people as possible. And it's important because the the research that we do is directly about policies, right, um, in many ways. On the U.S.-Mexico border, the militarization of the borderlands, the building of the wall, um, now U.S. gun laws, which which is another big topic, all of that affects people. So when I write, I do not want to only develop a new theory or refine a concept that maybe other anthropologists would find interesting. I actually want to intervene in this public debate with hopes that maybe these harmful uh, policies would change. But I wanted to, the book to be driven through stories um, so that people are interested in reading these stories and by the when they finish the, the book they also understand much more about what does this legal asymmetry in terms of gun laws between US and Mexico does or how is gun smuggling to Mexico related to the refugees who are running away from violence and appear at our southern border or the um, opioid addiction epidemic in the United States. How are these things connected? I I follow Yeva's path uh, with also trying in my in this uh, in this work to be a little bit more uh, uh, more open to to speaking to a broader audience and public. The work that we do is trying to show how um, this this obsession this this uh, uh, this militarized society has uh, created a damage in other places, uh, a damage that is in human, ecological, economic, uh, people losing their homes, people displaced, that the ethical responsibility here is to be the, these, the, these witness, witnesses of these um, different places, tell the stories of these different places. Um, 
so so I feel this is a it's an important responsibility that we have to our own society, to the societies we work with, uh, to the places that we work on, and also to the future of this of this country. Something that really struck me from your talk that I think really applies to both your work is you brought up Paul Farmer's term. You know, here's this drug resistant infection who, you know, which was named after the place it was found. So it's called Iraqi Bacter. Now it's, there's a stigma attached to, you know, to Iraq because of this drug resistant bacteria. And in a way, that same term applies to your work, which is, you know, we hear about all this violence that is coming from Mexico into the United States um, when, in fact, it's kind of the other way around. The purpose of war or this kind of militarization is to is wounding this kind of geography of blame. You know, it's like kind of the main purpose of it. It's to wound your enemy. And in doing so, so that wound of the enemy, uh, of the other, needs to be... Um, uh, become invisible also at the same time. It's displaced. People will be celebrating, uh, you know, winning the war. You know, we won the war, but then what becomes silent is the wounds of the of of the others and what that these wounds kind of will will be carrying. You see a way that the pain of the other or the this these wounds of other of the other are displaced. And in, in, in what comes in, in, in front of it or instead of it is a narrative that puts the blame, always displaces the blame on that, others, on, on the, on that other. In both our work, we're making, trying to make visible what these wounds that become displaced. And, uh, and for me, the Iraqi Bacter is definitely, it's an infection that people have to diagnose. There are certain objectivities about it that you, one could actually learn from sequencing genes, from uh, creating phylogenetic, phylogenetic, anal uh, phylogenetic analysis. Um, and, and at the same time, that bacteria has also very subjective meanings of how it becomes uh, a metaphor to speak about this other place. So this is then, this is kind of a, a great example of subjectivity and objectivity coming together in trying to explain why why this why this bacteria is being blamed on Iraq as it, it begins to appear as the US moves to Iraq uh, to kind of recall the the amazing work of the late Paul Farmer on especially his earlier work on uh, HIV AIDS in Haiti that was exactly the story AIDS was blamed on Haitians coming to the United States um, but when when uh, Paul was was retold that story, you begin to understand that this has a completely different kind of history. And I think kind of our, a lot of our role is to to kind of make that invisible history vis more visible and uh, available for others to really reread uh, this kind of geography of blame. Yet you're working on storytelling that is robust and well-researched and ultimately very thoughtful and reflective and multifaceted um, in trying to, you know, talk about violence, U.S. firearms causing violence, impact of it, aftermath 20 years after, you know, Americans went into Iraq. Um, yet 
the news cycle is quick. So how do you penetrate this no attention or this very fast, quick news cycle when you're trying to interject that kind of awareness or consciousness or attention span with this ongoing narrative of power and um, war and death. It is quite difficult. If you look at statistics in the U.S., now we have two mass shootings every 24 hours. So as a researcher, you, you have to kind of dig under events or happenings that that occur every day and see what are the patterns, right? So how how did we get here? History is very important. Um, in in my research with on gun violence, I I went you know all the way back to to the laws both in Spanish and in uh, British empires. Um, call it when they colonized um, North American continent. What kind of attitudes and what kind of um, norms were there around using, carrying, owning firearms back from 16th, 17th, 18th century? Where does the Second Amendment come into, into this? How did Mexico manage to create a quite rigorous firearms regulation in, in the early 1970s? at about the same time that U.S. passed the Gun Control Act in 1968, um, which was much less strict than the Mexican one. And we can see um, the consequences of what's going on in the U.S. and in Mexico. We can't even begin untangling this without understanding this long history and also without understanding how, how it affects different communities. So again, if we talk about the news, we hear mostly about these larger uh, mass casualty incidents, mass shootings, whereas even in the U.S., most gun violence happens in urban uh, communities or if it, or it can be suicides, more suicides than gun deaths in the U.S. for now. Um, and then in Mexico, it is, it is a little different. The numbers are higher, um, but... Uh, Kind of you you need to try to understand if we as cultural anthropologists look for meaning and we need to interpret it it's not it's very easy to condemn guns and gun violence um, but in order to understand why we are in the situation you also need to try to find out why guns are so meaningful to so many people um, and understand how we can change perhaps laws in ways that are more acceptable to to these groups of people that oppose um, gun safety laws in the U.S. I think one of also the big problems in this uh, country is the lack of accountability. The amount of money that has been spent on uh, on the Iraq war and on the war on terror is incredible. You know, it actually kind of could be educating most young Americans for free. Um, and this is a war that was, um, you know, the, the government went to war on false pretenses, uh, carried out mass killings, uh, you know, destroyed an entire society. And 
And with this amount of money that has been spent, the trillions of dollars we're talking, um, there is something really very strange that no one asks why there is so much waste, why the, all of this money has gone into into weapons and 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 the destruction of these places. This you know, a, a small fraction of this money could have could have improved the livelihood of people there in so many different ways. No one asks why. There are billions of dollars unaccounted for. And I feel in the U.S., the ideological argument that more weapons will actually make people safer. That's the that's one of the major arguments in this country is that people could go come on TV and be in interviews and say more weapons. Let's give the teachers weapons. So that's why shooting will not will not be will will be controlled in the schools. So I think there is definitely a um, a need of uh, of uh, soul searching uh, to think of why this obsession with with uh, weapons and I think kind of Yeva's work uh, begins to kind of open up these these conversations rather than just demonizing uh, these groups rather try let's try to understand what is really at stake what is at stake there what kind of fears what kind of uh, issues kind of that that one needs to understand before addressing this problem so. Final question. How do you shake off this heavy work? Well, I do boxing and it <laughs> has been tremendously helpful um, to kind of get out of my chair and leave my mind behind and just punch. I do music and I try to uh, uh, kind of, you know, engage in a very different kind of uh, collective uh, work. Uh, through music, um, I enjoy kind of playing for others, um, performing, um, having people dance to the stuff, and 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 seeing people dancing is for me is a form of healing from a lot of you know the the journey, the painful journeys, the wounds that we like you know pe- people like me or other people from my from my country have been kind of carrying with them because of these long histories of war. So you let others shake it off for you. Yeah. I'll, I'll be shaking it off <laughs> right. too, you know, oh, okay. dancing too. <laughs> and maybe these will be your next areas of yes. anthropology. <laughs> Indeed they are. You know, I thought it was really funny that um, that you both, for you, for both of you, English is not your first language. No. Neither no. is it for... Neither is it for either of Which us. That's why we love you. No. <laughs> we love you too. <laughs> thank, thank you. This yes, thank you so much. Yeah. The Born Curious podcast is brought to you by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Thanks for joining us. You can find Born Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Harvard Radcliffe Institute, visit radcliffe.harvard.edu.